I mean, if they're bringing back James Earl Jones, they should have brought back Jeremy Irons. To me, he does a better job with Scar. And that's with Lions emoting or not. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yannis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. So this uh, week, we're going to be talking about the 1994 Disney animated classic, The Lion King, and I am honored to be joined by Danielle Sulzman. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's it's always great to have people. One of the great things that I, I love about doing this show is that I... You know, I follow a lot of people, obviously film critics on Twitter. I'm connected with a lot of people there. And, you know, you and I have connected on and off over social media and and the Internet and stuff uh, over time. But this is actually the first time we're getting a chance to speak to each other directly. So it's nice to finally uh, make a more uh, a more personal connection with somebody that you're connecting to on the Internet all the time. Likewise. So tell people a little bit about what you have going on at Solzy at the movies and uh, what, uh, you know, what you're all about. I have been uh, covering film and uh, TV since uh, early 2016 at Solzy at the And you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Danielle S-A-T-M, D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E-S-A-T-M. And I've been traveling to uh, film festivals every now and then, starting with uh, Sundance uh, 2018, South by 2018, and so forth. I've got Toronto coming up here in the next few weeks. Is there, because you obviously are are way more versed in in film than even I am at this point, what movies have you seen at some of these festivals that have really uh, stood out to you that you would recommend to listeners who can, I mean, a lot of them might not even be playing yet, but that to keep their eyes out for. Well, I mean, one of them that just opened recently, Blinded by the Light, I saw that at Sundance, I fell in love. And uh, I've seen it three times now. I mean, there's other films that are coming out later this year, Little Monsters. I don't really do horror films, but when I found out it was more comedy than horror, I was signed on and I was laughing hysterically. That's the Lupita Nyong'o zombie movie, right? Or is I guess it's zombies? Yes, is with, it zombies, more or less? Yeah, with uh, Josh Gad as a, uh, I think a TV host or a former TV host, something like that. He right. does some singing there, so he could uh, possibly be uh, competing with songs he sings uh, during Frozen 2 when it comes to best original song. Cool. So, yeah, I've, I've definitely been looking out for that one. I've heard a lot of positive buzz coming out of the film festival circuit and such. So this episode, we're going to be talking about uh, The Lion King. So I guess it it kind of leads into a conversation that we, I guess, sort of started right before we, we started the, the show proper. But it's the fact that Disney has really taken over uh, the cinemas, especially this year. As someone who's you know trying to champion smaller films and and really trying to absorb a lot of the indie scene, what is what is your take on you know the fact that we're living in a we're living in Disney World basically now? I own a share of Disney, so it's one of those where I'm like, do I have a conflict of interest or right. what? <laughs> because as if as long as they make money, I make money. But at the same time, I mean. They're pretty much owning uh, every month of the box office. I mean, 
They've announced even more films during uh, D23. Yeah, that's the other thing that's kind of funny about us having this conversation about The Lion King. We're recording this the weekend of D23. So even though this year we still have, I guess, principally Frozen 2, Maleficent, uh, Mistress of Evil, and uh, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker, they're they're dropping bombshells left and right about everything from Disney Plus to the parks. To uh, to all of that stuff, so it's it's a it's a funny time to be kind of talking about it. I think, from my perspective, I'm a little torn based on you know obviously the business monopoly side of it that everybody on film Twitter is panicking about every two seconds, and then also the fact that they are really I mean for the most part I enjoy most of the most of the films. The Disney remakes can be a little hit or miss for me, and I'm sure we'll get into that in talking about The Lion King, but I largely really like the Marvel stuff. I largely really like the Star Wars stuff. Do you find yourself kind of facing a little bit of a a similar conflict when it comes to Disney about like, well, they're putting out good work, but they're also buying everything. So mm, split the difference. I mean, I love the Star Wars films. I love the Marvel films. And I mean, the animated films I enjoy. Yeah, that's true. We didn't even uh, mention Moana and Zootopia, some of the more recent like Disney animated animation studios efforts yeah and then um with the remake with the uh, live action remakes or reimagining whatever you wish to call them i enjoyed uh lion king this year i'm probably one of the few that did um dumbo was a complete miss the way i saw it aladdin when you take out the fact that I grew up watching Robin Williams, and to me, he's always going to be the genie. Mm-hmm. When you take out that fact, Will Smith did his own with that role. But, I mean, coming from my perspective, like, Robin Williams is a genie that I grew up with. So, for me, he's always going to be the genie. And it's interesting to see that Disney Plus is going to be uh, – the home for uh, the reimagining of uh, Lady and the Tramp mm-hmm. rather than giving it a theatrical release. I kind of wonder if that's going to be a trend we're going to see more and more of like the remakes of the, you know, the canon, like classic Disney films, Lion King and Mulan, things like that. Uh, I wonder if those will still be theatrical releases, but then they'll be like, we're redoing the great mouse detective for Disney plus or something like that. And kind of, uh, I guess the smaller scale ones and in, in air quotes, smaller scale, cause it's still all CG. But, um, I wonder if that's how they're going to start dividing things. I honestly have no idea. I mean, I know that they've announced when I went on Wikipedia a few weeks back, they had so many, uh, live action, uh, remakes like, in various stages of, uh, I mean, they could have been announced. They could have casting. They could already be in production, but I mean, there's a lot of them. Yeah, I think that they're they're definitely focusing on focusing in on milking the the Disney Renaissance aspect of it, and obviously the Lion King comes straight from straight out of that. Is there any before we talk about the Lion King and and its remake uh, specifically? Is there any Disney film that that you kind of think would be would be uh, a prime candidate for a remake? Is there anything that you're kind of like, well, if you're gonna do them all, Disney, why don't you start with you know, get to this one? It's a good question, but I mean, I was joking uh, the other night at uh, Wizard World. Someone was cosplaying as Woody from Toy Story, and I did not take a photo of them, but I thought about taking a photo, and if I did, I would uh, upload it as, oh, uh, this guy is just cast as uh, Woody in the live-action remake of Toy Story. 
<laughs> it wouldn't surprise I mean, it's me. It's only a matter of time before they get to the Pixar films. Yep. Oh, yeah, for sure. So I think that's a pretty good... It's, talking about the remakes is kind of a good segue, especially since Toy Story came out the year after The Lion King, and I think obviously kicked off the whole uh, computer-animated, uh, I guess, changeover that really has come to fruition since then. So let's talk about The Lion King, starting with a little bit of the trailer right now. We are all connected in the great circle of life. Walt Disney Pictures presents its all-new 30-second full-length animated motion picture, The Lion King. He was born to rule. This will all be mine? Everything the light touches. Wow. But a shadow lies over the kingdom. I will be king. Run away and never return. Kid Poutine. I don't want to talk about it. He looks blue. I'd say brownish gold. No, no, no. I mean, he's depressed. Anything we can do? Not unless you can change the past. He grew up hoping to leave his old life behind. I know who you are. You're Mufasa's boy. You're the king. King? Have you got your lions crossed? You know my father? Correction. I know your father. He died a long time ago. Nope. Wrong again! <laughs> He's alive! And I'll show him to you! Father? You are my son, and the one true king. You see, he lives in you. You must take your place in the circle of life. Simba! It's a legendary tale filled with excitement, plus dozens of wonderful new characters. And featuring original music and songs by Grammy winner Elton John and Academy Award winner Tim Rice. This summer, Walt Disney Pictures presents an entertainment event you'll never forget. That was a little bit of the Lion King trailer from 1994, directed by Roger Allers and Rob Minkoff. So, Danielle, I know initially that part of the reason we were going to talk about the Lion King is that we were going to originally record this closer to when the uh, the film came out in theaters. But in general, you know, what is your relationship to uh, to the original animated film, The Lion King? When did you first see it, and uh, you know, how has your connection to it, I guess, maintained over the years? I first saw it when it opened in theaters. And, I mean, it's one of those films where, I mean, Hans Zimmer's score is phenomenal. I mean, the animation beautifully holds up. I watched it again uh, the day before uh, watching the uh, new one. And it's, I mean, watching them on back-to-back days, it's interesting to see what changes were made what scenes are like pretty much word for word verbatim and what scenes look exactly shot for shot. Mm-hmm. 
did that did that enhance your enjoyment of the remake or or detract from it at all? Because I'm I, that's kind of my ish, biggest issue with the remake is that is it is so close to the original. I almost would have preferred it. It kind of veered off uh, on its own course a little bit more. With the new one, I mean, Be Prepared was substantially different in some ways. Mm-hmm. Like it was more song spoken. It wasn't quite the same as the Jeremy Irons version. And the other nice thing that I appreciated about the new one is uh, when they uh, do Timon and uh, Pumbaa's uh, distraction, rather than uh, Timon doing the, uh, I think it was the Lula or something, uh, they end up uh, starting to sing a few bars from uh, Be Our Guest, which was a great Easter egg. And then on top of that, I appreciated that they had a more fully realized number for The Lion Sleeps Tonight. Yeah, they definitely did ex- expand in in certain ways on uh, on what was there in the original. So, so when you saw the original uh, in theaters, like was it was it one of those formative uh, films of your childhood? Like what what was? Because I I don't know if people that are, you know younger people today remember, but that the original animated film made three hundred and twelve domestic, nine hundred sixty eight million worldwide. I'm sure that's also including some of the reissues and things like that. But it was a phenomenon it was one of the highest grossing movies of all time when it came out how much of an impact did it have on uh, on you when you saw it well i mean for me the first film i can remember seeing in theaters was land before time and then uh jurassic park was the one that had the really big impact on me because i wanted to become a filmmaker as we saw that film and subsequently uh star wars but I'm not so sure that Lion King had that same impact on me. I was going on 10 years old when it came out. And I already had uh, seen Jurassic Park, which aside from the first uh, appearance of the T-Rex, like that's one of those films where I can watch again and again. I mean, I had a few jumpy moments, the T-Rex uh, first shot. And then uh, the raptor when they're uh, turning the uh, power back on in the hallway. Yeah, I get the sense that we're about the same age because the, you're describing a lot of my my childhood uh, film going experiences as well. Land Before Time was a huge one for me as a kid. Um, my birthday is actually in June, so I think I saw, I think I saw Jurassic Park probably on my tenth birthday that year. And uh, and Lion King again was one I saw in theaters. Actually, that. That summer, I you know, really stands out in my mind because my mom was uh, was watching some neighborhood kids over her at her house. Like during the summer, she was kind of doing like a sort of, I guess, small scale daycare situation in our house for uh, for that summer. So we went to a lot of movies, my friends and I there. And uh, Lion King stood out, and it was one that I watched a lot. Had the soundtrack, but it, it didn't really capture my imagination in the same way. Aside, you know, from all the merchandise. <laughs> that was uh, surrounding uh, surrounding me. Like I always preferred uh, Aladdin is really my Disney Renaissance, um, the the film that I've really held closest to my heart. And it's funny you mention Aladdin because uh, dur- as the Little Mermaid was coming to an end, Disney offered uh, John Musker and Ron Clements the option to do uh, Swan Lake, Aladdin. Or some movie about Lions of the Jungle. <laughs> and they chose Aladdin because they didn't think anyone wanted to see some movie about Lions in the Jungle. And look at, I mean, obviously they're not so much in the jungle, but 
people did want to see a movie about lions. Yeah, I did a little research on this, too. And apparently, yeah, Disney was not really confident. Like, all their animators were going over to Pocahontas, which was happening, I think, in development around the same time as this and came out the following year. And, and yeah, nobody had any faith in this movie. And I wonder if part of that is, in a weird way, why the film was so successful, because it didn't have, you know, all the Disney bean counters over the over its shoulder as as hard, being like, well, we can't you know, we can't do that. That's too traumatic for kids or blah, blah, blah. You know, these themes are too, are too uh, dark. You're going to s- scare families away. Because the movie is, in a lot of ways, kind of heavy. I mean, it's about death. It's about, uh, you know, life and, and side of the, the weight that comes with that loss of innocence. And I wonder if part of the fact that the movie works so well is because it isn't afraid to tackle certain topics because the Disney executives weren't writing it so hard, if that makes sense. I mean, it's basically an animated version of Hamlet with a little bit of Moses and Joseph thrown in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, there's also that, what do you make of that whole controversy with, and I, you may not have seen it, neither, I haven't either, but that Kimba the White Lion apparently is very similar to it. It's a, an anime from the 60s. You, have you heard about this? I've heard about that. I mean, just from reading the Wikipedia page, but I haven't studied uh, that too much in depthly. Yeah, same, same. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's like that's something that I could look at for article purposes, but I haven't really wrote an article on it. Right, I'm not even sure what kind of access we have into, in the states to to that. Like, I don't know if it's really even readily available over here. You probably just have to scour the internet looking for it. But that is, you know, considering all the controversies regarding the story of the Lion King, I think it's funny that in my research I was like, well, there's three screenwriters, but there's 27 credited writers altogether with story by credit and additional story material and things like that. And I just find that found that kind of ironic considering uh, all these, you know, everybody shouting about how plagiarism and all that other stuff, especially, cons- you know, uh, uh, how much of that is true or not it remains to be, you know, I think is open to debate. But it's also, you know, it was such a, a cultural force that it's not surprising that that ended up happening. And what's so surprising is with the amount of uh, credited uh, people for the story, because of all the storyboarding for the uh, original film, a lot of those people don't get credited for the uh, new one. Right. So that, that's potential royalty uh, payments that they lose out on. Yeah, that's a good point. I find it kind of crazy that the new one has its own screenwriter because there's not that yeah. much really that different about the new one. I mean, as you pointed out, in, in large part, it is kind of, I don't know, 85% and maybe higher just direct translation of the animated film to, uh, to photorealistic, obviously not really live action. Yeah, and it's uh, also a longer film. Right. So it's like some scenes, they linger on a little bit longer or they add more uh, dialogue. Like they definitely added more dialogue when uh, Simba goes to uh, into exile and meets uh, Timon and Pumbaa and Billy and Seth. I mean, they really steal the show. Yeah, I agree completely with that. Yeah, I think that was also a good opportunity for the new one to to. Take, take something that worked in the original film and, and put its own, its own kind of spin on it. The fact that Timon and Pumbaa do have 
a lot of, uh, I mean, some of the same gags, but a lot of this, as you mentioned, even with the VR guest thing, uh, a lot of new material that they either ad-libbed in the recording booth or that, you know, they just didn't want to, you know, do the same thing over again. Yeah. I mean, they definitely had room for a lot of improv. So seeing this as a kid, like, what what was your, what, what kind of impacted the the big death scene, Mufasa's death scene, spoilers, obviously, for a 25-year-old movie, um, you know, that was traumatic for generations of kids. I mean, as a, as you know, as a, as a parent now myself, it, you know, it hits me, I think, even harder. Um, so how did, how did that play for you as a kid? And, and uh, you know, speak to that sequence, because it's really the centerpiece of the entire film. It is basically kind of the midpoint as well. I mean, it's always sad to watch. I mean, Littlefoot's mom dying is always sad. Oh God, I know. Bambi's mom getting shot and killed is always sad. I mean, I was at a uh, Alan Meekin uh, concert uh, a few months ago, and he was saying how in Aladdin that I think uh, either Jasmine had a mom or Aladdin had a mom, and Disney's like, uh, let's uh, nix the mom uh, because that's like Disney policy for a parent to die or something. I mean, even in Frozen, the parents died. That's true. That is kind of a Disney hallmark, isn't it? Yeah. It's like a classic uh, Disney uh, trope these days. Either a parent dies or is already dead. But I think what makes the Mufasa's death really cut much deeper, too, is the immediacy of it. The fact that yeah. it's, it's um, his own brother that throws him off the cliffside. The fact that Simba is like right there, witnesses it. And then, you know, that really the moment that really gets me the most is the the whole, you know, dad, wake up. That that whole moment afterwards where Simba's trying, realizing yeah. what happened. And then and then you have the the double twist of the knife where Scar makes Simba believe that he's responsible for it. That's like some real heavy psychological shit in a kid's movie, you know? Yeah. And it's it's crazy that in a, in a way it's crazy that this movie got away with that uh, because even nowadays like I mean yeah you have some movies that that uh, have more of a subtext to them and and I think you know Disney is in particular especially Pixar is really good at kind of baking in these life lessons in with the you know the the fun cute animals singing you know singing songs and stuff. Um, but I, I think this this film just, you know, I don't know. It just it, it feels like something really special in that regard. Yeah. How much of a factor do you think that the music is here? Because as you you know, we mentioned about Jurassic Park, which came out the year before, and and how the well, obviously the John Williams music really pushes that forward. And I think what really got everybody's attention with the lion king initially is the fact that the trailer much like the remake was basically just the circle of life uh sequence in i think in full in both of them i'm not sure if i could be i'm not sure if i'm uh, accurate with that but how big of a role do you think that just the the stark difference in their approach to the storytelling uh you know as as demonstrated in that opening sequence how much of a uh, how much of a role that played in getting audiences out to check this one out in theaters? Huge. Although I remember attending the John Musker Q and A a few years ago, and he was saying uh, the initial trailers for uh, The Little Mermaid hid the fact that it was a musical. 
I never really understand that approach to musicals. I'm like, what are the, I guess they're just hoping everybody's going to come into come into the theater and then just like, well, I'm here. I might as well sit the rest of the way. I, I don't understand that. You'd have to talk with the marketing team. <laughs> because that's something that like even in the 2000s, I think that, uh, man, I can't remember what studio it was, but Chicago had a similar, like the trailers were like, oh, don't, don't let us show anybody sing or Sweeney Todd, like a lot of movies that do that. I don't. If you're going to be a musical, like, say what you want about the Cats trailer, but at least that, that you know, wears on its sleeve. Hey, this is a musical. There's going to be singing cats. Yes, it's digital for technology, but get used to it. This is, this is how, how we're going to roll with it. And I have not subjected myself to that <laughs> horror yet, and I have no intentions on it. On the trailer or the film or any of it? Both. I mean, I never even watched the Broadway musical, <laughs> I so either. I'd be going in completely blind. Yeah. And after hearing the initial reaction to the trailer and what few uh, photos have popped up, I'm like, are we sure that you <laughs> really want to release this film into the world? It's not too late to go back. <laughs> yeah, you could. Yeah, it could all just be an elaborate prank. We'll we'll be fine with that. Yeah. Where's Ashton? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so getting, you know, talking about obviously Hans Zimmer is, is a genius and his score here is amazing. Um, and of course, we have the Oscar winning music with Elton John and Tim Rice. Is there a particular song? I mean, I guess Circle of Life is the easy answer here. Is there a particular song that stands out to you that, that you think really, uh, I guess, embodies Lion King for you is like that really stands out that's your favorite I guess this soundtrack I mean there's just too many to choose from you've got Circle of Life Akuna Matata Can You Feel the Love Tonight and there I mean Be Prepared which Jeremy Irons does so amazingly well I mean there's just so much to choose from yeah absolutely and uh, in the new film I believe Elton penned a new one and then Beyonce had her song, so Elton could potentially be going up against himself this year as well because he also penned a uh, new song for the end credits in uh, Rocket Man. Mm-hmm. There's definitely, you know, I have more mixed uh, feelings about the Lion King remake than you do, obviously, but I, I do love the fact that that between Lion, the Lion King and Rocket Man, that this does feel like a very like like Elton John is even more uh, in the conversation in the pop cultural conversation than normally. Uh, so so I you know because I'm a huge fan of his and I loved Rocket Man. I um, I think that's really that's really cool and I, I'd love to see him back uh, back at, at the Oscars. Uh, possibly, like you said, possibly with double nominations. I think I think definitely one of those films will get in at least one of the what five slots. For best original song, I think he's got a memoir coming out later this year. Does he not really? Early next year. Interesting. Yeah. That would be. I bet that's going to be quite an interesting read. Uh, I'm sure you saw Rocket Man. What did you think of that? Since it's tangentially Loved related it. to this, yeah. See, best actor is Terrence Toulouse. I think so too. I think so too. And I know there's a lot of people saying that because Rami won last year for a musical biopic that Terrence doesn't have a chance. But I mean. I haven't seen a better performance this year. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, initially I, I was a little skeptical on the whole thing because I've only, you know, I, I actually haven't seen Eddie the Eagle. So I know him basically from the Kingsman films. And it's like, I don't know that guy, Elton John, how's that going to work? But then seeing it in 
context, like he he totally. I mean, I I totally bought into it. He even kind of looks like Elton with with whatever they did with the hair and the makeup and stuff. Um, it's great. It's, it's it's an amazing performance, and I love the the, uh, the approach to the biopic. I mean, you know, we mentioned Remy Malek. And Bohemian Rhapsody feels to me very paint by numbers in its structure and its execution. And Rocket Man is just what you can do with a biopic when you really just let your imagination go wild on it. And uh, you know, I, I I love seeing Elton John being talked about so much uh, in in this way with these two big films coming out. You know, I guess a, a couple months apart. Yeah, more like a month apart. Was it really? Was it May? Yeah, like May for Rocket Man, and then June for Rocket Man was June. It was okay. Um, so getting back into the tone of the Lion King, I, I, you know, I was mentioning earlier about how I how how great the movie uh, the movie is in general because of the way that it, it balances. Um, all these heavy themes and makes them accessible to children. And not only that, but it, it has kind of a, a deeply spiritual side to the story. I mean, we meant, you mentioned about the, the biblical comparisons and uh, the role that things like Hamlet and stuff like that played in there. But there's also like, I feel like this film reckons with the, the, well, the circle of life and the, uh, you know, the passing of generations and sort of the, parallel between father and son in a lot of ways and i feel like it's very it's much more affecting than a lot of other kids movies how do you what do you think about how this film balances sort of the the deeper aspects of the story kind of making that kind of spirituality accessible to kids in the audience and also still having enough of the you know bright and poppy songs and sort of slapstick comedy which i guess mostly comes in either the first half or from timon and pumbaa later on speak to that a little bit well honestly i didn't even notice some of those themes when i was when i first watched it in theaters but you just know you're watching something special because i mean the hamlet thing or even the exile in the way, way similar to moses and joseph like those are things that i didn't even notice until several years later and listening to the commentaries is another way to enhance the uh, experience of watching the film, which is one reason why I prefer physical media over streaming, because of all the bonus content. Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm very much, you know, I I we mentioned uh, Avengers Endgame earlier. I went out and bought bought the Blu-ray copy, even though digital was out weeks earlier, and that's just the way I operate with that. I have a a huge DVD and Blu-ray collection, and I I think. You know, it's hard for me to find the time to dig into the special features in the way that I used to. But I, I love getting into uh, all the commentary tracks. I actually haven't done that for The Lion King. I bet that would be really, uh, really interesting to go ahead and, and get a little more insight into the filmmaking process behind it. Because you not only from a, a narrative uh, perspective, but also just like a visual one as well. Just the, the animation is so gorgeous, the colors and... You know, they have the use of uh, computer-generated animation early on. Well, I guess in the middle, you know, with the um, stampede sequence as well. Yeah, because I know I have the uh, Diamond Edition, which they've since replaced with the uh, Signature Collection Edition. And I'm not sure what they've added from uh, the Diamond Edition to the Signature Edition. But with the Diamond Edition, like, they even have stuff about the uh, Broadway musical that they put on 
mean, they had production diaries. I mean, they have so much. I mean, they have a lot of bonus features. Do you think that in general that the 90s, early 2000s were really the golden age? And I, I forget where I heard this. I think this was another podcast I was listening to. We're really the golden age for special features because I feel like a lot of times now, even in physical releases, that you get a, just basically the, the much more polished marketing side of things and not so much like, here's the real story behind the making of the film. It's just kind of, I guess, you know, featurettes put out by the marketing department to make the movie sound awesome, but not necessarily lend much real insight into it. Well, I mean, there are some, like, I get a lot of uh, Blu-rays and DVDs to review, and there's some that it's just the commentary. And you may be lucky to have a few features, and then you've got others that have, like, a feature-length uh, documentary. I remember going to South by last year, that Monday, Ryan Johnson and Mark Hamill were on hand for the road premiere of The Director and the Jedi, which was a feature-length documentary on... Uh, the Last Jedi. I mean, I've got Jurassic Park and Ghostbusters uh, Blu-rays, and I still haven't completely dived into all of those bonus features. But like, they've got the making of the films, and like, those are some of my favorite features because it's like film school. It is. It really I mean, is. You don't really have the money for film school. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I it's crazy to me that you know so many people want obviously want to get into the entertainment field and make films and all that. And they have all these lessons direct from the filmmakers mouths, elaborating on everything that went into the making of the film and, and all that. And then I feel like a lot of people, and except for, I guess the hardcore cinephiles like us, but a lot of people don't really tap into those. And I, and I think that's a real shame because in some cases, as you mentioned, I, I did, I forgot, I forgot about the director and the Jedi. I did watch that one too. Um, in some cases, there's a lot of work and effort that goes into documenting those things so that interested people like us can go ahead and, and track them down and and have a whole new appreciation for those films. Yeah, and like bonus content, I mean, recently Woodstock, the 50th anniversary, so I decided to uh, watch the documentary and the director's cut runs three hours, 44 minutes, and the bonus features on the director's cut has more songs than were able to be in the film. And then when they had the 40th anniversary revisited edition, there were even more songs added to uh, the bonus features. I, yeah, I do really love special features. And I think that whether it's the Lion King or, or another film, I do love the fact that we have that, uh, that access to things. And I hope that that's something that, that sticks around. I think that's in a way kind of the danger of a company like Disney having so much of, you know, their hands in everything is that they can make those, those decisions for how much gets out there behind the scenes process and how, what stories are told. And obviously that's the big concern with that. Uh, so hopefully, you know, when the Lion King remake Blu-ray comes out, it'll have, it'll have a lot of that as well, because I know, Favreau is obviously, a, you know, a really talented filmmaker and really interested in exploring that technology. So I'd be interested to see what his uh, what his mindset was, kind of going through all that, and um, you know what why he felt that this uh, approach was maybe not as maybe not as effective or more effective than than the original, but like told a different 
uh, angle on this story and why it was worth exploring. I'd like to hear a little bit more about uh, why that decision was made and, and what went into trying to set the film apart from the original, but also, you know, pay respect to what came before. Yeah. One thing that really stands out to me, too, with The Lion King is not only are the, the hero and villain so incredibly well-drawn, both in terms of their design as well as their character. I mean, you understand right from the opening scene where Scar is coming from. And obviously, you don't, you don't, you're not on his side, but you can understand why being cast out from Pride Rock and being kind of the black sheep of the family, why he would be motivated to to do the things that he does. But also the fact that the cast, in some regards, feels... I guess it feels very 90s to me in a certain way. And I think that's just mostly because I get hung up on the fact that Jonathan Taylor Thomas is in the voice of young Simba. Uh, because there is some inspired casting in this film as well. I mean, we already mentioned James Earl Jones and Jeremy Irons. Uh, of course, you had Nathan Lane and people like that that were also, uh, I think, you know, well-known, but not like, you know, that was before Nathan Lane's big breakout, I guess, a couple of years later in The Birdcage. Uh I think what was, you know, speak to the casting as well, because I, I also feel like this film, along with perhaps Aladdin, was really just the, the very beginning of celebrity voice casting. And then I, that it all kind of started with uh, Aladdin and then The Lion King. Yeah, it did start with Aladdin. I mean, but then they also, I remember at the Q&A, uh, John Musher said, like, when they were writing the film, they had it with Robin in mind for the genie. And there was no one else that they had in mind. Because, I mean, Beauty and the Beast didn't really have big names. I mean, you had Jerry Orbach from, uh, Orbach from the Law & Order series that I can remember. Then Angela Lansbury from Murder, She Wrote. At least those are the names I remember off the top of my head. I can't remember any big name uh, actors who were in The Little Mermaid. Exactly. And that's, and that's yeah, that's what kind of what I was... I noticed in, in preparing for this episode, I was, you know, you look at The Little Mermaid, it's like, okay, Jodie Benson in the lead, and then a bunch of other actors, you know, doing mostly character actors. And yeah, some of them were film, had film careers, some of them TV, whatever, but it was no like marquee names. Uh, same thing with Beauty and the Beast, Paige O'Hara is Belle, and then like a lot of a lot, a lot of talented performers, but I guess Angela Lansbury, kind of the most famous uh, of the cast for that movie. Uh, and even then, she's you know she's more of a a veteran of stage, film, and screen, and and all of that, but really not like a marquee name. And then you get to Aladdin, and it's Robin Williams. You get to hear, and everybody's Matthew Broderick, James Earl Jones, like all these big names. And then after this, it's Pocahontas with Mel Gibson as John Smith, and then it's uh, you know Hunchback with Kevin Kline and Demi Moore and all these other people. And I think that this was really the turning point because the next year after this is when you get Toy Story where literally everybody is a is a movie actor that you know pretty much from Tom Hanks and Tim Allen all the way down to Jim Varney and uh, and John Ratzenberger and Wallace Shawn and and it it felt to me that uh that you could see that the, this the turn right in the mid 90s with that just getting to the point where on the poster for Toy Story 2 you have the actors names above the the title and then, of course, that really locked into place with uh, Shrek in 2001, where it was just, this is Mike Myers, this is Cameron Diaz. And, I, you know, as a fan of voice acting and the, the kind of distinctive skill set that that involves, it's, you know, I feel like 
it's a little bit of a double-edged sword because you get you give some of these actors an opportunity to tap into a different side of their performances, but then at the same time, those are opportunities that would have been filled by voice actors who don't do not have you know a, a household name. Yeah, and uh, for the ones that don't have a household name, if they take a leading role, I mean, how is that going to affect the box office? And that's really what a lot of these decisions come down to: how much money is it going to make? I mean, I'm hearing that they're even taking social media following into account these days. That would explain Beyonce's casting because, I, I mean, her performance in the in the Lion King was, I mean, I not great in my opinion, but it makes sense that they would tap her because she's Beyonce because she, you know, she's Queen Bey and uh, she has brings that fan base with her as well as being able to you know contribute to the soundtrack and she's got a companion album to that to the new film and all of that. Um, so it's. It you know I, I feel very conflicted about it because it feels like a lot of the more talented voice actors, um, the you know veteran voice actors, not necessarily screen presence like Tara Strong and and you know people like that really get squeezed into television more and don't really get a chance to kind of headline films. But then you make a good point. It's like you know it's one of the one of the <laughs> one of the ways in which films films major you know A-list stars don't really carry films in the way that they used to, where it was like Tom Cruise on a poster and it'll make a hundred million because it's his face on the poster um, or Arnold Schwarzenegger or Julia Roberts or whatever. It's, but they still kind of monopolize the animated films. Even if, you know, earlier this year I have mentioned, I have a, you know, I have a two-year-old and we went to see things like, you know, um, what was that? Ugly dolls where it's all, every star in the, every character in the movie is, is a big star. It's like Nick Jonas and Kelly Clarkson. And I'm like, okay, I mean, I guess. Um, so yeah, so that's, I think definitely something notable about the Lion King. And I just wanted to make sure we covered that. Yeah. Uh, so one of the other things that I noticed here is that coming out in the mid nineties, this is obviously before representation was as, was, was as mainstream as it is now where we weren't really trying to, uh, to make sure that everyone's voice was heard because you can tell with this film, there's not the original film, especially there's not a whole lot of effort to be kind of authentic to the African setting. I mean, we mentioned that the cast is by and large, you know, comprised of white people. I mean, yes, they're voicing animals, but it's also kind of, if you're trying to uh, relate a little bit of the, the African culture and you know, a lot of the character names are Swahili for different words and uh, aside from Jones and Madge Sinclair, who does the voice of Sarabi and who also played against James Earl Jones in Coming to America, you know, you have Lebo M doing arranging the circle of life. But other than that, there's not a whole lot of effort to that. And that's one way that I think that the the remake does, you know, make a substantial difference in that they they did try and and you a little closer to that setting. Do you do you think that you know, do you think that's important, I guess, not only, obviously representation is important, but do you think it's important in this case, considering, you know, this isn't Aladdin or, or uh, Mulan, where there are actors on screen, this is, these are voices and, and they're lions and meerkats and et cetera, et cetera. So how, how important do you think that is for this story? And do you consider that a, one of the major assets of the remake? Oh, it's definitely a major asset of the remake. I mean, one, like, touching on Aladdin, I mean, one of the good things about the new film is they got it right with casting, especially after casting, uh, what, two white people for Aladdin and Jasmine in uh, 
the animated film. That's another thing with Disney that really stands out to me is that they do feel seem like they're at least whether whether they're doing it because you know the audience demands it more now or whether they're doing it because they're at least trying to you know trying to embody a, a more modern sense a more modern value system when it comes to representation they are trying to they're making a little bit of more of an effort with that i think it's taking baby steps because the people the creative people probably don't uh, you know, want to want to see that progress go by much faster than the uh, the business people, <laughs> the executives at the top and such. But you know, whether it's Marvel or Star Wars, we're seeing a lot more uh, a lot more voices for women, for people of color, for LGBT. So I think it's it's great that you know, The Lion King is one aspect of that. And yeah, they are voicing lions and and you know baboons and different things. But it it, it does it, it's more to I think the setting of the film and the fact that this is a story about Africa. So, you know, why not use that as an opportunity to cast African-Americans and, you know, actually actual Africans in these roles rather than uh, rather than, you know, you know, Matthew Broderick as our African prince, basically. Yeah. And it's definitely important with, to get as close to authentic casting as possible. To where does this film rank for you among the Disney Renaissance? I was I was really just curious about that as well because, for me, as I mentioned, this is probably you know behind Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast, but because it's never really stuck with me in the same way. I feel, and I feel like in a way, it's it's obviously a, a solid film and a really a really great film in a lot of ways as we've touched on. But it's also to me because it was I think I'm jaded because uh, you know I, I remember the phenomenon that it was in the way that I am still kind of jaded with something like Titanic where I'm like, it's inescapable for months on end. So I almost feel like it's overrated. And then when I watch it, I'm like, no, this is pretty good. What the hell am I talking about? Uh, do you, do you have kind of a similar relationship with the Lion King and what is your favorite Disney Renaissance film? It, for me, it's at or near the top. I mean, the ones that stand out to me are Lion King, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and it's funny you mentioned uh, Titanic because I just spent this weekend uh, getting the opportunity to meet Cal Hockley himself, Billy Zane. Have you ever um, met or interviewed anyone from The Lion King? Since we're talking about, since we're talking about that, I have met Seth Rogen. Uh, this was at the uh, Good Boys premiere at South by. Um, is there is there anyone in the the Lion King either version I guess that you want to meet that like who who if you can meet and interview one person from either film uh, either version of the Lion King is there anyone that you're like oh I really want love to sit down with this person and uh, and kind of pick their brain on the experience of making that? Well, I mean I'm sure I mean James Earl Jones I mean just to talk about Star Wars right or Sandlot. Talk about a legend who could, who's been in so many, so touched so many lives um, with his, you know, on screen and voice work. I mean, just if you talk about just Mufasa and Darth Vader alone, it's like, geez, he's, he's iconic already. Oh, yeah. And Terrence Mann and uh, Field of Dreams. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And just the fact that Disney is, you know, I think that's really cool that they're trying to keep with some of this like legacy casting for some of their remakes uh, when they can. I mean, you know, here with James Earl Jones uh, returning as Mufasa and, and um, there's another example that I'm thinking of. I'm just not, it's not sticking with me. 
Uh, I, I really like that, that, that they're trying to bring these people back. And I mean, you're not going to, you're we're not, they're never going to find a better casting for Mufasa than James Earl Jones. And he's still around. So why not? I mean, that's one of those roles where you just can't imagine anyone else in the uh, portraying them. Yeah, absolutely. So Danielle, before we wrap it up, uh, is there anything about the Lion King that we haven't mentioned that you wanted to make sure we cover? Do you, did you have, uh, any kind of relationship with any of the spinoff material after this, any of the sequels or the stage musical or anything like that that you wanted to mention? Honestly, no, because I never really watched the sequels. I mean, I have them added on my uh, Chicago Public Library for later list to uh, borrow when I um, have the time. I mean, I would love to see uh, The Lion King from Toad from... Uh, Let's see, I believe it's one and a half that tells mm-hmm. it from uh, Pumbaa's point of view. Right. Yeah, I mean, I never saw the uh, stage musical. And because I uh, never saw the sequels, I never saw the uh, television uh, spinoffs. It does feel like a very, a very self-contained story in a way. Like, I know Disney obviously was in that phase where they were franchising everything and making straight-to-video sequels to everything from the Lion King to Aladdin to Cinderella for some reason. Um, but, but it does, you know, I think part of what makes this movie so singular is that it, it does the, the movie much like the opening song does go full circle. Like it starts with Mufasa as King and Simba being born and it ends with Simba as King. And then the, you know, the birth of, of his child. And I think that's, you know, that's a, that's a beautiful sentiment that the impact that you have on your children and the way that it, 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 uh, the way that it affects the way that they they're going to rule, the way that they're, they're going to live their life, and then that legacy just passes down from generation to generation. I think that's a really a really beautiful point that the film makes, and it's ultimately a very important lesson for viewers of all ages, obviously, but for younger people who you know, for kids who haven't really had to consider that kind of thing yet. Great. So Danielle, unless you have something else, uh, can you tell people where they can find you on social media? You can find me at Danielle SATM on Twitter and Instagram, D A N I E L L E S A T M, and Salzy at the Movies on Facebook. That's S O L Z Y, and Salzy at the Movies.com. Again, that's S O L Z Y. Awesome. Thank you so much, Danielle, for coming on and talking to The Lion King with us. I know. You know, we had to uh, we had to reschedule it a little bit, but I'm glad that we were able to make it happen and um, and talk about this film on its 25th anniversary. And as the uh, the remake is is tearing up the box office still, actually, I think it's still probably pretty uh, pr- probably hanging out in there. So uh, thank you for making the time and, and coming on. This was a lot of fun. No problem. Thank right. you for having me. Absolutely. Have a good one. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. Z-R-O-L-K-E-D. 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 Z-R-O